0: Welcome back to Cartels, Conspiracies, and Camarena. I'm Jack Llewellyn. Thanks again for joining me. Tonight we are going to start a series of podcast episodes that deal very specifically with the two Zuno trials and do so in a way that we haven't done before. And I'm going to explain more of that in in just a second. But before we get started, a couple of notes. First of all, last week we talked about Javier Barber Hernandez and Tomas Morlet and suggested that one or both might have had more involvement in the kidnapping, torture, and murder of Agent Camarena than previously known. When we were talking about Tomas Morlet... I borrowed heavily from Jaime Kirkendall's book. And there was a point in there that I didn't bring out in our discussions that I maybe should have. And that was that there's evidence to suggest that Morelant had a relationship with the FBI, that he um was an informant or otherwise working with the FBI. And in fact, Part of the evidence for that is that during the time after Camarena's murder, when Morlet was at least a person of interest, he still was able to move back and forth freely across the border between Mexico and the United States and and vice versa. So the notion that Tomas Morlet had more connections than might have otherwise been known is definitely out there, and one can speculate then whether that um, says anything, if it informs us in any way as to his possible involvement in the Camerana case. Again, something I probably should have pointed out last week. Now, let's talk about the two trials we are going to examine in depth over the next couple of weeks and those are the two Zuno trials, Zuno One, Zuno Two. We'll talk about them very specifically in just a second. As most of you know, and I've, you know, disclosed over and over, I was part of the defense team that represented Ruben Arce. in the first trial. I was a summer associate, kind of when it started, so I was drinking from a fire hose, trying to catch up on information. Was not heavily involved in the case other than research and things. But I was, you know, in the courtroom quite a bit. Second trial, two years later, I was much, much more involved. I was a lawyer then, um, significantly involved. Though, again, I was kind of the low man on the totem pole in our defense team. But involved in a lot of the discussions, most of the strategy discussions, those sorts of things. And then I was the principal author of most of the early appeals on behalf of Ruben Zuno. When we talk about the two Zuno trials in the next couple of weeks, including tonight, I want to make it clear my interest here is not in proving that Ruben Zunorarse was innocent or that he shouldn't have been convicted or to provide a defense. My interest is in looking at the testimony presented, looking at the cases presented, and asking questions about that testimony, those cases, and encouraging you to ask questions. We're going to look at witness testimony that is going to shock a few of you, I think. I think there are some big surprises in what people actually said back in 1990 and 1992. That's why we're going to look at these two cases. And the beauty of these two cases is that you have same defendant, or at least one common defendant, Rubenson or say, Relatively close in time, and yet very, very different cases in some respects. Provides a nice basis for kind of a compare and contrast. Okay, so that's the lead up. The two trials. Zuno One, Is United States versus Juan Ramon Matabalesteros who we all know, right? Honduran probably was the connection between the Colombian cartels and Miguel Angel Felix Gallardo, probably had connections to and with the CIA through his air company and things um very very popular in some respects in Honduras at one point he was the largest private employer in the nation some interesting details surrounding his actual capture but again we know about him and I I've told this story before but the first couple of days that I was able to go to the trial I ended up sitting because of the configuration of things um Next two were very close to him, and uh, to say that I was intimidated, even though he never, as far as I know, never even looked at me, but to say I was intimidated would be a dramatic understatement. So you've got Juan Matabasteras as one of the defendants, Ruben Zunarce as another, who we know, Juan Jose Bernabe Ramirez, um, who was a bodyguard for Caro and Fonseca. He was at Lope de Vega, allegedly. He um, he wasn't very bright, and he ended up giving a lot of statements to an undercover DEA operative um, or DEA agent years later where he bragged about being at Lope de Vega, bragged about the airport confrontation where Caro, you know, flies out after Pavone Reyes, let him leave, but that's who, um, he is. And then you have Javier Vasquez Velasco, who primarily was charged with the murders of Messrs. Walker and Rattlet at La Langosta. Opening statements start on May 15th, 1990. The, um, The pre-trial to this case or this trial took upwards of of a couple of months. You can find transcripts going way back into April, various hearings on a variety of issues from all of the defendants. Um, But the actual trial starts May 15th, 1990. Closing arguments take place in July, 1990. July 11 and 12. Now, obviously, court didn't take place every day, but that's a pretty long trial, right? May to July, um, almost two months. I think, though, don't quote me on it if you break it down. It was like six weeks full or, or mostly full weeks of testimony. Key witnesses in this trial key witnesses Hector Cervantes Santos we've talked about Cervantes in the past Cervantes is the first one to come out and say there were conspiracy meetings and government officials were involved we'll talk about him a little bit more more key witnesses Lawrence Victor Harrison The tall gringo, the communications expert, maybe affiliated with the CIA, mysterious reliability is a big question mark. We'll talk about him next week, and we're going to look at his testimony. We're not going to just talk about him. We're not going to summarize him. We're going to look at exactly what he said. Hector Boreas is a um, key figure in this trial. And we're going to look very, very carefully at his testimony. Jaime Kirkendall is also a witness, as is an Enrique Placentia Aguilar, who um, was also at or alleged to be at some of the conspiracy meetings that Cervantes talks about. And we'll talk about him in just a second. So that is Zuno 1, May, June, July, 1990. If you remember, everyone gets convicted. Ruben Zuno Arce moves for a new trial based on prosecutorial misconduct. Essentially, what happened is during the testimony phase of the trial the government had talked about the fact that Primavera Park, where Captain Zavala and Agent Camarena were buried, at least for a while, that that had been owned by the Zuno-Arce family, or the Zuno family. Ruben Zuno's defense tried to put in a map they weren't allowed to put in the map. The government had basically said they're not making the claim that it was Zuno's property, uh, et cetera. Then on closing arguments, that connection was made in the government's closing by Manny Madrano. Whether it was inadvertent or not, Judge Rafiti grants a new trial. That grant of a new trial is affirmed by the Ninth Circuit, and then we move to a second Zuno trial in December of 1992, okay, so month or a year and a half later or so. This case is U.S. technically, it's a U.S. versus Rafael Caracantero, but obviously he wasn't there. This case is U.S. versus Ruben Zuno Arce and Humberto Alvarez Machine, Dr. Machine. We did a whole episode on what I called the curious case of Dr. Machine. So I will try not to repeat that. Um, but we're going to get into some of the, the statements of the prosecution that I think you'll find interesting in that regard. Opening statements, December 2, 1992. Closing arguments, December 16, 1992. Always remember that because it was my birthday. It was a Friday. And I went home and I slept for a weekend. Almost literally. Uh, Key witnesses in in that trial. Key witnesses. Remember, first trial. Placencia Aguilar. Cervantes. You don't see them in the second trial. You see Jorge Godoy. Rene Lopez Romero, Lawrence Victor Harrison again, and next week we're going to talk about the testimony from the two trials. Then you have somebody by the name of Frank Redamoza who we will talk about as well, and then Jaime Kirkendall, and we've talked about it before, but we are going to talk in a future episode, probably not next week, but the week after, about the allegation that somehow Jaime Kirkendall provided testimony on behalf of Zunor Arce at the trial. And we're going to go back and we're going to read the transcript. And more importantly, we're going to read the transcript of what Manny Madrano said to the judge with respect to Jaime Kirkendall's testimony. And that will completely negate in any reasonable mind the idea that the testimony that Jaime Kirkendall gave was beneficial to or in support of Ruben Zuno Arce. One of the things I want you to keep in mind, we had a two-week trial. And you you can think, well, that's not that long. It was nearly as long as the prior one. We were still really, really... um, it was, it it was amazing. Um, all the work that went into it and we were getting Jenks material and Jenks material is our statements made by prosecution witnesses. And we were getting that information like 48 hours before they testified. So it was, I mean, it was just nonstop day after day and we were getting new information, some of it good, some of it bad. Um, You know, over and over and over throughout the trial, leading up to the trial, immediately after the trial, we'd asked for the ability to um, take the deposition of some witnesses in Mexico because they had provided new information that might have presented a different theory with respect to the case. So it was a two-week trial that I promise you felt like um, a, a much, 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 much longer trial than that. Now, I'm going to read portions of the opening statement of the government, okay, and I'm not going to uh, talk about the opening statements from the defense, because again, my goal here isn't to talk about the defense or to provide a defense. It's to look at the interesting nature of the cases presented. By the government. So the government was represented by two assistant United States attorneys. You had Manny Madrano, who we've talked about over and over, and John Carlton was his partner. They actually ended up being law partners for many years after the fact. In both trials, John Carlton gave the opening statements. Closing arguments were handled by Manny Medrano. Okay, so John Carlton does, you know, starts his, um, his closing argument, or I'm sorry, his opening statement. And one of the things that's really interesting is there are pages and pages and pages of testimony that talks about... The cartel, you know, the Guadalajara cartel, and how bad they were. And uh, admittedly, also talks about you know some of their losses, which could have been used for motive and things. One of the interesting things about the trial, especially the first trial, was there was so much testimony about how bad this cartel was. And it went on for days and days and days. And you heard all kinds of stories, especially about Rafael Caracintero and, you know, his gold-plated AK-47 and his, you know, gold bracelet that said Rafa and all these other things. Um, And it made – frankly, it made the case very, very hard because by the time you ended up at the defense – um, or even by the time they started presenting evidence against the defendants specifically, I think the jury was so predisposed to find against people who may have been associated with the cartel. And then you add to that discussions about the brutality uh, endured by Agent Camarena and the interrogation and the interrogation tapes. It, it was it was difficult but so you've got all that discussion now some interesting things i just want to point out a few things from John Carlton's opening statement in Zuno number one one of the things is he says hey i want to tell you about the cartel and we're gonna t- here's rafael Cairo cantero here's some things about Ernesto Fonseca Carrillo. Um, then he talks about Miguel Angel Felix Gardo. Uh, he says, um, he says it, Felix Gardo was somewhat different from Carl and Fonseca in that he was a man not quite as flashy as Caro or well-connected. He owned a series or a number of hotels in Guadalajara, including the Las Americas Hotel. I find it very interesting that he says that He wasn't um, well-connected or as well-connected as Carl. Then he says, remember going back to our discussion last week about Barba. Javier Barba Hernandez, who I will refer to as Barba. Barba was a former student leader, a Mexican student leader who became a lawyer, and eventually the right-hand man, essentially, of Ernesto Fonseca, and a powerful force in the cartel. So, uh corroborating some of what we discussed uh last week, okay a couple of really interesting things that come out of this when you you think about it. um he goes through and talks a little bit about the alleged conspiracy meetings. Remember Cervantes is gonna testify to. Five conspiracy meetings, essentially five. In the opening statements, he says, There was yet a fourth meeting, and again, you will hear eyewitness testimony about this fourth meeting, which took place in December of 1984 at one of Fonseca's Guadalajara houses, known as La Bajadita. This meeting was attended by, by some of the most important traffickers in Guadalajara, including Carl and Fonseca. And at this meeting, ladies and gentlemen, you will hear that a photograph was passed around to the participants, a photograph of Kiki Camarena, and the participants in this meeting talked about taking care of Agent Camarena. Keep that in mind. Please, not not just for today, but in the next couple of weeks. And then hearken back. Remember the idea that there was a consulate employee who pointed out Carl, or he pointed out Agent Camarena? Remember in the last NARC, Godoy and Lopez come up with the BS that it was Rene Verdugo who pointed him out? There he is. Here you've got John Carlton saying they had a picture of him. They passed it around. Then you get to... In February of 1985, there is another meeting, this time at Barba's house, attended by Carl, Fonseca, Zuno, and Barba. Then Carlton says... Barba was instructed to pick up agent Camarena and defendant Zuno gave him specific instructions as to how the agent should be questioned. But I ask you in all the times we've talked about the abduction of agent Camarena. Is there anything that we've seen in the past that talks about it being Javier Barbara Hernandez, who was instructed to pick him up? Anywhere? Did anybody say that? And remember from our discussion last week, El Sammy says, Barbara came later. Right? Okay. Something else that I want, this is an important point. Both trials at the prosecution table, in addition to AUSA's Madrano and Carlton were DEA agents Doug Keel and Hector Boreas. Right. So keep that in mind. In John Carlton's opening statement, he says he's talking about the airport confrontation, you know, that famous confrontation. He says, I should point out to you, ladies and gentlemen, that as of that moment, there was not a DEA agent in Mexico who knew what Carl looked like. No one had ever seen him, and no one had ever seen a photograph of him. And I ask you, is that in any way consistent with what Hector Breas has said over and over and over and over again? And we'll get into that when we look at his testimony next week or maybe the week after. Certainly not consistent with Narcos Mexico, right? Okay. Then lots of time is spent in the opening statements, as you would expect, talking about the forensic evidence. And I just want to read a couple of paragraphs for you. Among the items that were found were hairs. Hairs that were found in various locations throughout the house, but particularly hairs located in what we will refer to as the guest house, which is really a separate building out behind the main house, made of concrete blocks, et cetera. And in the guest house, as well as other locations in the main house, there were found hairs Hairs that match in every comparable respect the hairs of Agent Camarena. Samples were also taken from this guest house and from various other locations in the main house at Lope de Vega. And the carpet fibers from these fibers match in every comparable respect. Carpet fibers that were scraped off the clothing of Captain Zavala that had been taken from the Guadalajara morgue. And fibers that were scraped off the burial shroud that had been taken at the morgue you will hear that the hair stuck to the tape blindfold that matched in every respect agent cameron's hair then he also says other hair matches were made including rene verdugo and sergio espino verdine then carlton goes on to say and i frankly had forgotten about these two notes um, until i was looking at this this week First, he says, and the evidence will show that Espino Verdeen was the chief interrogator of Agent Camarena, which I find interesting. I think that's plausible, but remember, there were lots of, there may have been more than than one even chief interrogator. Remember, the the first one is kind of calm and, and things, and then you get the second one who's a little bit more impassioned, which may have been Barba. But then later on, there may have been a whole different set of interrogators The idea that for sure it was Espino Verdin is is interesting. And then he says the evidence will also show that as he was being interrogated, Agent Camarena knew where he was. He knew that he was at 881 Lope de Vega because the information that he provides on these tapes that you will hear will prove that. Okay, we'll talk about that later as well. I want to go through the rest of the the opening statements before we delve into anything specific. Um, there was one final match of hairs which I haven't discussed yet with you. In a bathroom adjoining a bedroom of the main house at Lope de Vega, was found a hair which matches, in every comparable respect, the known hair of defendant Juan Mata. So, AUSA Carlton makes a big deal as he should of. The, the hair, the fibers, the testimony that's going to come from FBI Agent Malone. And we talked a couple weeks ago about all the problems with Agent Malone and more than just him, the science in general. So keep that in mind, too. Then I love this. This is the last one on this particular trial in the opening statements, Carlton doesn't mention Cervantes or Placentia Aguilar or anyone else by name doesn't talk about specifically what they're going to talk about. He talks in in kind of the generalities um, as is fairly normal in the, in in these opening statements of, of this type. But Then he says at the very end, um, This will be a lengthy case. You will be hearing from a great number of witnesses. You will be seeing many pieces of evidence. And then this, some of the witnesses that you'll be hearing from are confidential informants themselves or have been in the past. Some of them received money from the government. Some of them have committed crimes themselves. And then he goes on. And (laughs) the, the degree to which that is an understatement is pretty astounding. Um, and and one of the, the clear, you know, considerations in this case is the people that they are getting information from, including from the first trial, Hector Cervantes Santos. Because remember, after the trial, Cervantes recants, unrecants, re- Unrecant, I mean, he's all over the place. One of the things, though, is at some point he's mad because he says the government, in particular, Manny Medrano, had promised him a lot more money after the trial. Of course, the government says it never happened, but there is significant financial incentive for some of these witnesses as represented by this recantation etc from Cervantes if in no other regard so the the idea that just says hey they've been paid a little bit and they might have done some bad things um you know is 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 interesting so those are the opening statements from Zuno 1 okay or th- those comments come from there we now fast forward To December 2, 1992, opening statements for the government in Zuno 2. This case now is only Ruben Zuno Arce and Dr. Umberto Alvarez-Machine, right? So let's look at some of the things that are said here. Again, you have a long discussion about how bad the cartel is. Totally understandable we um get the discussion from a USA Carlton about the cartel he talks about Rafael Caro Quintero he talks about Ernesto Fonseca he talks about Miguel Ángel Félix Gardo. you know who gets left out Javier Barber Hernandez it's almost not mentioned at all certainly not in the way in the first trial, he was said, you know, he's a powerful member of the cartel. Doesn't come up at all. Okay. So that's interesting point number one. Number two, I want you to think about this. I did, a, I have a chart, an Excel spreadsheet of all of the different alleged conspiracies, conspiracy meetings, sorry. And I'll mention this again in a, in a couple minutes. But I come up with 11 meetings that were attended by a total of not less than 81 people. They all can't have occurred for various reasons and things. But that's a whole lot of people. Now, one of those meetings was at Los Americas Hotel. Some of them were at houses. But I want you to think, just logistically, think about this for a second. Carlton John Carlton is talking about the various alleged conspiracy meetings coincidentally Godoy and Lopez talk about five which basically is what Cervantes had talked about in trial one but they're not the same five so these att- these meetings he says were attended by representatives of every group that had an interest in the cartel's operations there were the traffickers the main traffickers, Carl Fonseca, Felix, prominent politicians attended some of these meeting meetings, including the governor Enrique Alvarez and the Minister of Gobernacion, which is Manuel Bartlett Diaz. Mexican law enforcement was represented at several in the person of Miguel Ibarra and Miguel Aldana. And the military itself was represented by the Minister of Defense. Um Aravallo Gardoki, and one of the defendants was also there, Rubens an RSA. Does it, does it just boggle the mind to consider that there would be a meeting at a place like the Las Americas Hotel or one of Fonseca's houses in Guadalajara that could possibly have Caro. Felix Gallardo, Fonseca, the governor of the state of Jalisco, Jalisco. Sorry, Manuel Bartlett-Diaz, Manuel Ibarra, Miguel Aldana, uh, General Gardoki, and others. Does that make any sense to anyone? It's crazy. And talk to people in Guadalajara and they'll tell you how crazy it was that nobody noticed that? Think about it. If you're, if you're going to have a conspiracy meeting, and I'm not saying it didn't happen, okay? I, you know, I, can, I can't prove that it didn't in, in most cases. I can prove who wasn't there in, in some cases, and we've talked about that in the past. But think about it. If you're going to kidnap a DEA agent... Or you want to take care of a DE agent because they're causing problems. Would the best way to do it be to have five or six or seven or eight planning meetings with up to 80 people involved that includes the people that we just listed off? You know, famous politicians, famous military people, all getting together to talk about this. In Guadalajara, not even in Mexico City, in Guadalajara, aren't they going to stick out like a set of sore thumbs? So, that's what he says about the meetings. Interestingly enough, in Zuno 2 and in the opening statements, there's a lot of discussion about the hairs and the fibers. And remember, when we talked about Agent Malone, I said one of the concerns wasn't just the Rene Verdugo's and the Juan Mata of the world who had that specific evidence against them thrown out. It was the fact that credibility was assigned to the prosecution's case because of these analyses. So again, in the In Zuno 2, you have John Carlton saying, among other things, they found many, many hairs. They found hairs several at locations in the house. They found hairs in the Volkswagen automobile on the property. And they found hairs in the guest house. All of those, a number of those hairs matched in every comparable respect, the hairs of Kiki Camarena. Other hair matches were also made, not just with Agent Camarena, Hair matching those of Juan Mata were found in two locations at 881, including the guest house. Hair matching Rene Verdugo was also found at that location. And hair matching in every comparable respect, the hair of Sergio Espino Verdin also was found at 881 Lope de Vega. Man, when you hear that as a juror, right? In closing, or I mean, in opening statements, God, they found hairs off of all these people? Sure sounds good to me, doesn't it? Government must really know what they're doing. And yet that science was bad. We know that now. All right, a couple of other things. I want to talk just for a second about... Um, Dr. McChine, Dr. Alvarez. And as I said, we did a whole episode on him. But remember, when he's kidnapped or taken, you know, forcibly from Mexico, dropped off almost literally at the airport, he says, hey, I'm actually glad. I've been wanting to talk to you guys. I don't want to hide anymore. You know what? I was at Lope de Vega when Cam was there. I was there twice. And I looked in, I saw him. He was being treated by another doctor. Doesn't dispute that at all. So, but listen to what John Carlton said about Alvarez Machine and the charges against him. And remember, sitting you know, at defense table is Ruben Zenoirce. So you can say that this is only being said as to one. But as we just said, man, you know, guilt kind of envelops everybody that's around. So here's what he says. You will be hearing evidence that the FBI agents searched the residence at 881 Lope de Vega. They found in the bathroom of the guest house lying on the floor a syringe. In that syringe were traces of a drug called lidocaine. The evidence will show that lidocaine is one of the first things that a doctor will turn to to stabilize a fibrillating heart. That's a heart that has begun to vibrate so quickly that it doesn't pump blood. And the evidence will show that heart fibrillation can be caused by the very sort of injuries suffered by Enrique Camarena. You will also hear that in their search of the Lope de Vega residence, the the agents found some plastic bags, like dry corner bags, in the closet of one of the bedrooms. One of those bags had fingerprints that have been matched to the fingerprints of defendant Umberto Alvarez Machain. So defendant Alvarez admits that he was at Lope de Vega as an, and, uh, as an observer to Cameron's interrogation. Ladies and gentlemen, the evidence will show that he was much more than that. Well, we also know that the evidence didn't show that. They proved absolutely nothing other than he was there as he said he was. And that a syringe was found. Interestingly enough, there was no connection to Dr. Machine with the syringe. Remember Carlton says, hey, there's some plastic bags with Machine's fingerprints on them. They weren't on the syringe. Now also go back. We've asked the question before. Isn't it interesting what evidence was left after the residence was cleaned or after certain evidence was taken out of 881 Lobe de Vega by DFS, right? We know that happened and yet certain things were found certain things like microscopic evidence or hairs totally understand syringe is interesting to me though. Uh, Interestingly enough, in the conclusion of um, Carlson's opening statement, he talks again about Alvarez Machain and says, Defendant Alvarez Machain alone is charged with felony murder in re- in relation to Agent Cameron's death. That's the connection to saying he was the one who was, was helping keep Agent Camarena alive, he is the one who injected the lidocaine, something they were never able to prove, and that's why the case against Dr. Alvarez Machine was dismissed, never even went to the jury. Okay, I want to talk about just a couple of things and conclude kind of today's discussion on the Zuno cases. And here is the most important thing. Remember in the past, we've talked about Godoy and Lopez. We've talked about how bad of people they are. We've talked about all the internal inconsistencies. We've talked about the, the miraculous way in which they remembered or starting u- using Ruben Zunuarce's name after the Ninth Circuit uh, upheld the new trial. We talked about the money they received. We talked about the fact that they're still in the United States. Lopez Romero is in Las Vegas, I believe. All of that. But what's really important is the government put on a case in 1990 based on Hector Cervantes Santos. He testified as to five... Conspiracy meetings. Alleged conspiracy meetings. 1992. Cervantes. Is nowhere to be found. He's not mentioned. Instead you've got. Godoy and Lopez. But. The meetings. The alleged meetings. Testified to. At the 1990 trial. And the 1992 trial. Cannot stand. They are inextricably mutually exclusive in about fifty-two different respects. Hey, okay? we've got charts, <laughs> we've got diagrams that show all of this, and there's just there's a variety of things in our appeal brief. We list um, at least seven different. Direct conflicts between the testimony of Hector Cervantes Santos and the testimony of Godoy and Lopez in Zuno 1 and Zuno 2, respectively. So, a couple of questions for you. Even if, from a legal standpoint, Putting on inconsistent evidence in different trials is not violative of a defendant's rights. Is it right? But more importantly, which one is wrong? Was Cervantes lying in nineteen ninety or Godoy and Lopez lying in nineteen ninety two? Or they both, or all three of them lying all the time? Somebody was lying, and more importantly, the government, Manny Medrano, John Carlton, Doug Keel, Hector Boreas, put on testimony that convicted defendants that was false. We know it was false. We may not know exactly which part was false or who said it, but we know somebody was lying and they put them on. Why? Why didn't they know that somebody Cervantes, Godoy or Lopez Romero was lying? If they didn't know, they should have known, and we ought to be asking why they didn't know. And if they did know, then they put on somebody, a witness, they knew was going to commit perjury. Either way, I find it hard to come to the conclusion That the prosecution fulfilled its obligations to the court and to the justice system. I also will note, excuse me, if you go back to the first trial, the U.S. versus Lopez Alvarez, and Rene Verdugo, that trial, no conspiracy meetings at all. Remember, it's not... Until Cervantes comes out. And we've talked about the way in which these defendants. Or these witnesses. Suddenly started appearing. Grate Bustamante. Goes to Hector as, Hey I've got all kinds of witnesses. Let me bring them up. And he brings up some. He brings up a lot. He brings up more. And all of a sudden. All of a sudden now. There's a conspiracy. So you go from no conspiracy in the first trial, the first Camarena trial, to a conspiracy of some sorts in Zuno 1 and an entirely different conspiracy with different meetings and different people in Zuno 2. Okay. That, my friends, is scratching the surface of the interesting things we are going to find by looking at the testimony from the two ZUNO trials. Next week, we're going to look at Lawrence Victor Harrison. Give a little bit of background, but I'm going to rely again on his own words. The questions from the government his responses, and his responses on cross-examination. And then we're going to look at some very, very interesting testimony that comes from Hector Boreas himself that maybe next week, my guess is it's going to be the week after, and then we'll look at a few more things. So we're going to spend the next three, four, or five weeks just looking at this. I think this is fascinating there's lots of good information here, and we're not saying anything that's not in black and white. It's what these witnesses said. It's what John Carlton said on opening statements. It's what John Carlton said, for example, about no one knowing who Carl or what Carl Quintero looked like with Hector Bray is sitting right there. All right. Thank you very much, everyone. I am taking a road trip next week with my daughter to the Grand Canyon and various other places, including Winslow, Arizona. So there will be pictures of uh, me standing on a corner. So uh, enjoy your week. I know I'll enjoy mine, and I will talk to you next week on Cartels, Conspiracies, and Camarena. Take care, everyone.